Marty Miller gets a lot of respect around here. All she had to say was welcome, and everybody just quieted down. It was really kind of amazing. Well done, Marty. So just uh, one more time, we will be here next Sunday, the 24th, Christmas Eve morn. Christmas Eve morn, you know, we'll be here, and then Christmas Eve Eve, uh, we can join in with Christ Church. By the way, they have two services. They're both the same. You don't have to go to both. Uh, it's just five or six. 30 or 615, whatever is written there in your bulletin. Also, just want to say uh, thank you for those who came to the Christmas party last weekend. It was really, really fun. And a special thank you for those who really made that happen. That was, uh, well, I'm going to probably forget somebody if I start naming names, but um, you probably know who it was. It was a, a lot of the ladies around here who have really uh, made this happen. So thank you, ladies, so much for, for all that you've done. It was really, really fun. Okay, we are... Uh, in our third week of our Advent series, which we are calling uh, The Surprising Branches of God's Family Tree. We are tracing back through Matthew 1, where Matthew starts his gospel by laying the foundation of Jesus' family line, his genealogy. He is announcing him as the king, the long-awaited Messiah of the Lord. And he begins to build that case by laying out a genealogy. Well, in this genealogy, we find five women show up. Four of those we're looking at during this series. And we've already seen how these women that we're looking at are kind of a surprising group of women. They're not necessarily your standard southern bells that you would want to show up in your own genealogy. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the only person who has ever lived who got to choose his own lineage and genealogy, wrote these women into it. And so we want to study them and look uh, at what the Lord has to say to us through that study. Let me just read you a little bit of the way that Matthew starts his gospel. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's who we talked about week one. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, who we talked about last week. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah, otherwise known as Bathsheba in the Bible, is the story that we're going to look at today. So if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to Second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel 11, we did not print it in your bulletin because I'm going to read most of the chapter to you. But if you've got your own Bible, you can follow along or you're welcome to just sit back and listen to this story. This is Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, in the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw, the, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and he took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived 
And she sent and she told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and he did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and he drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening when he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his own house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out to fight with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Skipping down then to uh, verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and he brought her to his house, and she became his wife. She bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, even when it's hard, even when we see the men who are supposed to be leading your people, uh, acting in really despicable ways. Lord, will you uh, use this as a mirror to us that you might show us how we oftentimes fail, but even more so, Lord, will you show us that we need a king, a good king, a true king? And will you help us to come to know that king more deeply through your word today? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I should have probably said before I dismiss kids that this is yet another of the passages in the Bible that has a bit of a PG rating. So parents, just FYI, if you would like to walk any of your older kids upstairs, you may do that now. But honestly, if you or your children have been listening to the radio or watching the news or have seen anything going on lately, you are seeing the constant stream of sexual misconduct allegations that are coming from men who have power against women who don't. And the stream just keeps coming and coming. Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer. Russell Simmons, Al Franken, Roy Moore, Donald Trump. There was an article in the New York Times that listed 42, 42 men just in the last, I think, four months that have been accused of some sort of sexual misconduct. Now, 
it's not the place right now to talk about whether those allegations are true or not, but um, 42 men is a lot of men. 42 men, all of whom are in some sort of position of power, and all of whom are accused by someone who is in lesser power, a woman who is actually subservient to them in some sort of way. It's easy, I think, when we hear this news to think, well, first of all, it's really timely. This is something that just kind of happens now. This is our time. There's this flood of information that's coming out about what's happening. That just marks our culture. And we feel it's very, very pertinent, very timely. At the same time, I think we can also think, well, yeah, it's very pertinent and timely, but, you know, these are just people who live in Hollywood, you know, or New York or Washington. This isn't the stuff that happens to real people. So at the same time, we say it's really relevant and new, but also it's not really about me. Well, in the story we just read, about 3,000 years ago, the same sort of thing happened. And it happened not to somebody who lived off in some far place that we could say, that's just kind of how the pagans act. It happened to the king of God's people. It happened to the one who was announced anointed as king by God, the one who God says, this is a man after my own heart. And the same thing happens in this story. Let me just retell it again, and we'll recount this story. David is the king of Israel. He's been given that position and that power by God. And his job is to lead God's people in righteousness, in justice. His job is to protect them and to lead them and to show them what it looks like to be a faithful servant of the Lord. And he's engaged in a war with some of his enemies around him who have risen up. And the Lord has been faithful over and over to put those enemies down. But David has been at war for about a year. And a lot of his men have been out at war. But we open here in the springtime when uh, we are told that it's the time where typically kings go back out to war. And they engage in this battle again. But David isn't at war. He's at home sitting on his couch, idly twiddling his thumbs, while his men, his army, are out protecting his country. And while he is sitting idly at home, up from his couch, there had to have been a remote in his hand, I think. He gets up and he looks out over all that he has in his city and he sees a woman on the roof who is bathing. Now remember, there's no indoor plumbing in Jerusalem at the time. This is probably a natural spring. So it wouldn't have been all that odd to have that happen outside. And David is struck with lust and he has the ability and the power to act on that lust. And he sees her and he says, go find out who this woman is. So he sends a messenger to find out who she is. And the messenger comes back and says, that's Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam. And oh, by the way, she's married. And she's married to one of your mighty men. Uriah would have been actually a pretty high-ranking official in David's army. And he's out at war. He's off fighting your battles. And that's her husband. And David, instead of saying, wow, what a great guy Uriah is. Somebody do something to protect Bathsheba, his wife. He does just the opposite. He says, bring her to me because I want her and I have the power to take what I want. And so David, in his power, sends people to bring Bathsheba to him. He, by my reading, coercively uh, has sex with her and then sends her away. And then later she calls and says, or she sends a note and she says, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant no response from David, except that he then devises a plan to try and figure out how he's going to cover this whole thing up. 
right? Because he thought he had gotten away from it, but oh, problem, now I'm pregnant, what are we going to do about this? So he comes up with a great plan. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll find Uriah. And instead of confessing to Uriah what I've done and actually apologizing to Uriah, I'll bring him to my house and we'll talk and we'll chit-chat for a little bit. And he has this great little chit-chat with him. He says, all right, man, thank you so much for your service. You've done a great job. Why don't you take a little furlough? Why don't you go home for a little while and wash your feet? Which uh, commentators will say is, is either a, a euphemism for sex or he's simply inviting him to go home and spend as much time at home as he can. But clearly what he wants him to do is to go home and sleep with his wife. Why? Because he wants an out. He wants it to look like the son that Bathsheba is about to have is Uriah's son. But in an amazing tragic irony, Uriah is much more righteous than David at this time. And he decides, I'm not going home. Why would I go home when everybody else is out in the field and they're fighting? I shouldn't do that. And so he sleeps at David's front door. Well, David goes for round two. He tries the same thing, except this time with the addition of alcohol, hoping that maybe at least the drunk Uriah is a little less thoughtful. But that didn't work either, and Uriah stays at that front door one more time. So David goes to DEFCON 3, and he orders Uriah's death. He sends a note to Joab, and he says, put Uriah right at the front, and then draw back from him so that he will die. Because David has that power. He has the power to command people to come and go. He has the power to command people to live or to die. And so he uses that power to kill Uriah. And then in the end, after Bathsheba mourns her husband, David takes her into his own house. And I've got to think that he probably thought he looked like a really swell guy by doing this. The headlines on the Jerusalem press, you know, probably read something like, you know, benevolent king takes war widow into his own home. But we know better, don't we? That's the way that we usually hear the story. But I also want to tell the story from a different way. And it's a way that oftentimes we don't hear it. It's from Bathsheba's perspective. This is a woman who deserves to be dignified, I think, in the telling of her story. Just think really quickly about how it was from her perspective. Here's a woman whose husband is at war. He's been at war and gone for probably a year. She's alone. We don't know if she has children to care for or not, but she clearly does not have her husband around. Now, women in this culture would have had a very low uh, form of cultural power. Uh, So they would have been unprotected without a husband around. And she's taking a shower, and as she gets out of the shower, she hears a knock on her door. It's a couple of David's servants, and they just say, you're coming with us. And they take her, and they bring her to the king's palace. And the most powerful man that she knows... The most powerful man in the country at the time propositions sex to her. And then he sends her away. She writes him later to say, I'm pregnant. And we read of no response from David. And then her husband dies in battle. Then she's taken from her home and brought into a new place to be part of the king's harem. To be one of his hundreds of wives or concubines. And then we read on later, actually, in the next chapter, that that child that she conceived dies. That's Bathsheba. She's a woman who is alone, who is, again, by all reasonable accounts, in my opinion, raped, who is sent away, who is then has her husband killed, she's widowed, and then loses her child. That is a tragic, tragic story. 
You know, it's interesting. Again, we oftentimes tell this story of David and Bathsheba, and we tell it as a story of adultery and a story of murder. And there is certainly adultery, and there is certainly murder. But if you read on to the next chapter, what happens to David is that the prophet Nathan comes, and he confronts David. And he says, listen, I know that you think that you did this all in secret, and you got away with it, and you came out looking like the good guy, but the Lord actually sees And he sees through all of this. And he begins to tell him a parable about a rich man who takes a poor man's lamb away. And David becomes enraged and he says, how could this rich man who has all the power, who has all the wealth, how could he prey upon someone who has no power and take something that wasn't his? And he gets enraged and he says, that man should die. And Nathan looks at him squarely in the eyes and he says, you're the man. That is what you've done. See, when Nathan tells the story of David's sin, he doesn't tell it as much about adultery and murder, though, again, those are the vehicles toward his sin. He tells it about power. What he says is that you have been given power as king, and you have abused that power against one who is powerless. The very one that you are called to protect, you have abused. You have used your power to get what you want out of it. To get what you want to satisfy your needs and your desires. And you have abused that power to do so. There's a book, actually, that quote that was printed for you uh, earlier comes from this book, which is, I hold it up, but there's nothing to see. It's called Playing God by Andy Crouch. One of my favorite authors and one of my favorite books. It is a book all about power. It is one I highly recommend. I want to read you a little passage here. He is talking about what it's like to learn to play the cello. He decided to take cello lessons at age 41. He's actually an accomplished musician, but had never played the cello. And so he starts to talk about what it's like to begin cello lessons this late in life. And this is what he says. Learning cello is a weekly reminder that true power multiplies when it is shared. The distribution between Dane, his teacher, and me is asymmetrical. Dane has power that I do not, the power to play the cello. I have some power of my own, of course. I have the ability to pay him a fair wage for his time. But the truth is that Dane was making a living before he took me on as a student. He he does not depend on me for money in anything like the same way I depend on him for instruction. In fact, the exchange of money involved in cello lessons perfectly illustrates how different power is from money. After every cello lesson, I pay Dane $50. When I walk into his studio, I have $50 in my pocket, and after I walk out, I have 50 fewer dollars, and Dane has $50 more. That is what game theorists call a zero-sum transaction. Dane's wealth is increased by precisely the amount my wealth decreases. The total amount of money in our little microeconomic system remains the same, only its distribution changes. But the same thing is not true of power. At the beginning of the lesson... Dane has a substantial amount of power to play the cello, and I have a very small amount. But in the course of the lesson, I acquire a bit more cello-playing power. And this increase in my power does no damage at all to Dane's power. This is what game theory calls a positive-sum transaction. At the end of the lesson, the total amount of power in the world to play the cello has increased. 
what Crouch is getting at is that the way that God has created power, and when I say power, what I'm talking about is, is agency, the ability, the power to make something of the world, the ability to make something of our lives and to create and to be his co-regents of creation, to recreate even things that he has given us, is that God has given us power, but we oftentimes see it in that zero-sum game, like it's a pie, right? And, and if you've got a bigger piece, that means I've got a smaller piece. And so really my job is to take more from you so that I can have more. There's only a little bit there, and I've got to get more, and you've got to get less. It's a zero-sum game. That is oftentimes the way that we think about power. I've got it, and so I exert it over you to get what I want out of life. But that is the opposite of the way that God has created us. He has created power to expand He has given us the job and the responsibility, the stewardship, to actually increase the power of others. To enable others to be agents in the world. To enable others to create. To enable other people to flourish. That is our role as human beings, to glorify God in enabling other people to flourish. That is the power that we have been given, but so oftentimes we get it so confused. Let's go back to that story of David and Bathsheba and just tell it one more time, but with a different slant. What if, what if David the king had used his power well? How would this story be if David had decided, God has given me something that I'm supposed to shepherd, that I'm supposed to tend, that I'm supposed to uh, give to others and see it expand? How, How would he have acted toward Bathsheba differently? Well, maybe looking out from his couch, first of all, he probably wouldn't have been there. He would have been out protecting his people. Secondly, looking out from his couch, he probably would have, instead of saying, there's something that I want, how can I get it? The question would have been, how might I, the king who has the ability to make things happen, protect a woman like that from being preyed on by people like me? How can I figure out a way that we might be able to build a fence around her bathtub? So that people can't look down from their houses and see her. How might I figure out a way to even build institutions in the culture that enable these women whose husbands have been at war for a year to come together and to add something substantive to society? How can I give them a job to do? How can they come and express their unique identity? Do you see how David actually could have used his power for really wonderful things to build and enable to to create agency in the lives of others. All right, let's bring this home just for a little bit as we land this plane, do some application. First of all, I want to talk to women in the room. Because, again, overwhelmingly, the news that comes out is actually of abuse by men toward women. So, women in the room, here's just a few things. The first is this, is that if you feel like you can identify with Bathsheba, uh, I want you to know that Jesus is a comforter. And he is a king who loves justice. He's a king who comforts his people. He comforts those who mourn. And he loves justice. And he fights for those who are, who are oppressed. He fights for those who have been abused. That is the king that we have in Jesus. Secondly is this. Is that your culture does not dictate your agency. In the world, your ability to make something of the world, your power to do something with your life is given to you by God by nature of you being created in his image. That is what it means to be human. And Bathsheba's culture or your culture now do not determine that. 
We live, we live in a different culture than she did. But still, we live in a male-dominated culture. So, women, you need to know that your ability to make something of the world is given to you by God. It's not given to you by your culture. And the third is this. It's just know that the one who had the ability to write his own genealogy is proud to have Bathsheba in it. He's not ashamed to see her there in Matthew 1. He is proud that she is there. All right, men, let's talk to us for just a second. First of all, if you feel like you can identify with David, if you feel like you have abused uh, your power in this world, particularly in the ways that David did, you need to know that Jesus also is a king who loves to forgive. And I would encourage you to begin that conversation with him. Read on in this story in the next couple of chapters and you actually see a really beautiful picture of David's repentance. You see the way that he comes to the Lord and he falls on his knees and he begs for forgiveness. That is the model for us. That is the way that we are supposed to come and fall on our knees as well. And you know what? Jesus also has David in his genealogy. He's not ashamed of that either. He's got Bathsheba and David both in there. Here's the second thing, men, and this one is, is just hitting to the heart maybe a little bit more. Is that again, oftentimes we can kind of see this as, well, that's the stuff that happens in the Bible and these old stories. Or that's the stuff that happens to people who are millionaires in New York City or in Hollywood or whatever it is. But just ask this question, how oftentimes do we as men use words or actions that, that actually um, that take the power away from people rather than give it? Think particularly even of the women in your life or those who work for you or those uh, who, who are engaged in some sort of uh, function in your life where you have more power than they do. How are our words, how are our actions building up and how are they tearing down? And then let me talk to all of us who have some form of, of cultural power. And honestly, that includes most of us who have some form of cultural power. The question for us really is this, is how are we using our power? Are we using it to get something that we want out of life? Are we looking and seeing and saying, I'll take that. I'll take that. It looks like it'll fill me and give me what I need. Or are we using our power to enable others to flourish? Are we stewarding the power that God has given us well so that we might see others increase in their power? It's fascinating to me to look at Matthew 1 and see the women who are laid out in that genealogy and see them really each as crying out for a good king to come. As Matthew announces the king, you can look at each of these women and see what they are crying out for. We talked about Tamar the first week, and Tamar is an example for us. She's crying out to say, you know what, we need a king who is more faithful than Judah. We need a king who is more trustworthy and more honorable and more faithful than Judah, the one who abused me. As you see Rahab last week, you see her crying out to say, we need a king who welcomes in outsiders. We need a king who takes the shame of those who have been bearing it. And we need a king who can bring someone like me even into his kingdom. And as we look at Bathsheba today, we see her crying out saying, there needs to be a king who uses his power well. There needs to be a king who doesn't abuse the power he's been given. And friends, that is the king that is announced to us by Matthew. That is what we celebrate this Advent, the coming of a king who has ultimate power, who created the, the sun and the moon and stars with simply his breath. He is the king over all. But Philippians tells us he humbled himself. He gave up that power that he might become one of us, that he might become our servant, and that he might lay himself down for us. That is where we see that ultimate power expressed. 
is him on the cross saying, I have the power now to forgive. I have the power now to make you whole. I have the power now to change your identity. I have the power to cleanse you and to make you right. That is the king that we celebrate this Advent. That is the one that we announce. Come quickly, Lord. Come quickly. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a king who does not abuse his power. But who, Lord, has come, who has come in power, and that looks super weird to us. It's a baby in a barn. It's a, it's a man growing up poor as a carpenter. It's a man who would come and sacrifice his life, hang on a cross that we might be saved. Will you show us what this kind of real power looks like? And will you enable us even to respond to that, Lord, so that we can use the power you give us, that we can steward it well to enable others to flourish? Will you work that in us even today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's spend a few minutes just reflecting on that. There will be a question up here on the screen. A few minutes and then we'll transition to the Lord's table.